Welcome to Seeds and Their People. I'm Chris Bolden Newsom, farmer and co-director of Sankofa Farm at Bartram's Garden in sunny southwest Philadelphia. And I'm Owen Taylor, seed keeper and farmer at True Love Seeds. We're a seed company offering culturally important seeds grown by farmers who are committed to cultural preservation, food sovereignty, and sustainable agriculture. This podcast is supported by True Love Seeds and by our listeners. Thank you so much to our newest Patreon member, Jamie. Find us at patreon.com slash trueloveseeds. We're doing this new thing, an ad exchange with our friends at notillgrowers.com. They have a bunch of podcasts we like to listen to, including a seed growers podcast. Check it out. Hey, everyone. If you're enjoying this show, you may also like the No-Till Market Garden podcast with co-hosts Mimi Castile, Natalie Lansbury, and yours truly, Alex Ball. We interview growers, researchers, and others in the sustainable ag community about everything from soil-first farming practices to farm business management in the wild world of soil biology and health. So head over to your favorite podcast platform today and subscribe to the No-Till Growers Network. This episode features Mary Maniti of the Italian Garden Project, which celebrates the joy and wisdom inherent in the traditional Italian-American vegetable garden. Preserving this heritage and demonstrating its relevance for reconnecting to our food, our families, and the earth. I'm excited to share this interview. It's our 24th episode and the first one that really focuses on one of my ancestral foodways. I've been reconnecting to Southern Italian seed stories for many years as part of my investigation into who we were before assimilating into a white American culture. And as you hear in this interview, my work with Mary has deepened that sense of connection profoundly. Well, there's so much to say about this interview. You know, and I guess I do kind of say that about all the interviews because all of our interviews are so special, you know, in the world. Mostly, of course, because of the people who are just gifting us with their story. But this one, I think, was one of the more powerful ones, uh, particularly because it uh, comes, uh, you know, uh, from your culture, from your ancestral culture uh, of Southern Italy. And so it was so exciting, uh, you know, for me as your partner to, to like, hear this investigation that I know for years you have been doing, you know, this recovery, cultural recovery, I guess maybe a better word. Um, but to hear it played out, you know, in an interview with an Italian-American elder who has dedicated a lot of her life's work to the preservation of your people's culture. So, you know, just that as a starting point, I think, and as a, as a deep uh, touchstone um, for cultural relevance in in white identity uh, today, just that, that that I think is powerful. And so and I hope that many people are inspired by it um, because it, it, it can bear so much fruit. I was particularly excited um, in the moment that that, that uh, Miss Mary realized that you had uh, rescued some seeds, that you had 
kept some seeds that she thought were gone. I think it was Mr. Maki and his seeds and, and you know, that you were growing them and just the delight that you could hear in her voice and I could hear her smiling deeply just just seeing that. But I was also really, really impressed. You know, I'm always, for me, like farming and, and, and just earth work, agricultural work by the peasant peoples of the world that we all come from is is one of the chief and, and, and most powerful uniters uh, of, of, of all cultures across language, religion, and, and everything, ethnicity and tribe. Um, you know, we all have this in common. And so I'm always looking for those ways in which my own people's culture, African, American, and African diaspora, you know, uh, has a, a cognates um, and relations in other cultures. And the idea of uh, a food culture that is based in survival uh, really stood out uh, to me. You know, that, that also is very similar, both ancestrally for me as an African and then as an African-American uh, later on. So just this notion of, of having to constantly adapt and, and readapt uh, um, your cooking methods, um, new materials coming into places where there are different foods. And it was really, really illustrative to hear the voices of those Italian ancestors, uh, you know, spliced throughout the interview. That was very powerful to me to hear their voices and to hear them talk about, you know, their evolving food cultures. I loved it that the beans are picked and cooked really similar to how um, my people cook beans in, in the South, fields and snaps, even though they, 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 the beans you were talking about weren't uh, black IP types. You know, and, and I loved also, too, speaking of, of those cultural connections, uh, those moments of sharing around the origins of some of these crops that have become naturalized uh, in Italian, especially Southern Italian foodways. You know, the, 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 her realization and learning about which species were uh, initially African or Asian and, and American and how those, uh, you know, became Italian foods now. I loved it hearing about the elder who insisted that her mother and, and uncles and relatives had been growing the long bean for years. And so how could it be, um, you know, something other than Italian? She didn't really say that. But I think that implication, I love that when we embrace a food so much that it becomes us, you know, and, and, and becomes a signifier and almost like a, a flag of who we are. You know, I think about the collard green uh, or the mustard green for black people in this country is very similar. Those being European and Mediterranean species that now, you know, we've just we've just brought them into the house and and and, and they become uh, identifiers of of uh, Southern culture and black Southern culture, particularly. So there's so much to say uh, about this interview. Um, you, you, you dart between um, spiritual and religious and social uh, historical ideas, uh, you know, to the practical uh, notions of, of planting and harvesting and all of it, you know, so, so really, really powerful. Uh, and I'll say, you know, probably two, one last thing, um, you know, it was, um, as a student of religion, uh, for me, it was impressive to hear um, you all talk about sort of the evolution, you know, and as a Catholic, of course, you know, to hear about the evolution of those agricultural connected religions, you know, as they sort of evolved in Christianity and what was kept through Catholic practice 
you know, I think you talked about the Madonna of uh, Salento, the Madonna uh, de Sacromonte, you know, being initially at a shrine of, uh, of, of the goddess Hera. So all of that was very exciting and powerful to see how culture persists and, and, and may change, you know, forms, but it really persists. It's a, it's a beautiful history uh, lesson and, uh, and a powerful uh, narrative. And it's such an honor to be a part of that persistence of the culture. And, and in particular with, with Mary, you know, she shared many seeds with me from the gardens that she's visited over the past, you know, more than a decade. And in this interview, we do, as you've alluded to, go out and visit those plants growing. But we start out the interview at a table outside of our farm gate at True Love Seeds, sitting at the lunch table in the shade. Uh, and I believe it was in August. And we hear a little bit from Mary about her work before we go on that tour around the farm. So today I am really excited to be on our farm with Mary Maniti from the Italian Garden Project, visiting from Pittsburgh. We've been speaking for years online, on Zooms, on emails, on Instagram, and finally we get to meet in person, and I'm so grateful that you could make it to our farm today. Thank you, Owen. I am so happy to be here, to be in this beautiful setting and finally meeting you in person. Well, before we do a walk around and visit your beloved plants that you've gathered from Italian Americans, I would love to hear what is the Italian Garden Project? How did it come about? And um, what does it look like today? Okay. Yeah, so I um, uh, started the Italian Garden Project uh, because I love all things Italian, <laughs> all things gardening and just anything environmental so it really combines all of my passions but um, I grew up immersed in Italian culture and I all of my grandparents were Italian immigrants and my uh, paternal grandfather had a big garden where um, I lived he lived a couple miles away would but would come every day uh, he retired about the time I was born, so he spent his days uh, in my entire childhood in our backyard. We had several acres, and he would garden, and uh, he, my dad got him a couple sheep, some chickens, so he got to spend his retirement days um, doing exactly what he loved. And that, I think, is being present to that is where my love for Italian culture, for gardening, and the environment uh, grew. So I really like to give him credit for being the inspiration for the Italian Garden Project. And so I, um, you know, grew up with him, had the so lucky to have a big Italian family around me growing up, extended family of uh, aunts and uncles and cousins who were very much immersed in Italian culture. Um, but, you know, we go on, we move on with our lives, and uh, my grandfather passed away uh, when I was in my 20s, and, um, and I started raising my own family, and you sort of get away from your culture, you don't get to be immersed in it like you were as a kid, but then um, uh, my husband and I and the children moved to a community where there were a lot of post-World War II immigrants. So my grandfather came from the first wave of immigrants who came uh, between like 1880 and 1920. He came in 1912. 
and now then immigration really slowed down and then from uh, po after po the World War II after World War II there was another influx of immigrants from Italy because of the devastation that Italy experienced during, during World War II so there was this whole um, community where we um, moved of more recent immigrants who were who were doing exactly <laughs> everything that I remembered from childhood and it was amazing you know right there in our community these folks were living like uh, everything what now we would call sustainable you know living uh, eating locally and eating with the seasons and saving their seeds and doing all these things that um, that I was amazed with and I wanted to be around so I started hanging out with them all the time and then I started uh, sharing them with friends and when every friend I brought there would be amazed that you know that they were uh, make you know had cured sausages that they just made hanging in the basement or wine that they just made and all the seed saving and these giant gardens and so I started giving tours of uh, these friends gardens uh, for a fundraising project for a local nature center that I was involved in and then I saw the interest every every tour was sold out and we had to add tours because everybody wanted to see these gardens and um, it's just the project just grew from there I really saw that that there was uh, that these folks were amazing and they were under the radar screen and someone needed to shine a light on them and uh, I really from there have felt it's my mission to give them the credit that they deserve to share them and their traditions and their entire way of life with all of us who I feel are so desperately trying to get back to that and need to get back to that for so many reasons. What's the timeline here? What, what, what years are we talking about? Oh, so I started my first tour in like 2010. So I've been doing this a long time and it slowly grew. I mean, first, I didn't really know what it was. I started, well, people were amazed when I brought them into the garden um, at all the fig trees, this Mediterranean fruit that was this fruit tree that was growing in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where they are not meant to grow. But people had a, um, a lot of the people remember their grandfathers, the first wave of immigrants doing it, and they wanted to learn how to do it. So I started giving fig tree growing classes, and then I started giving more tours. I would uh, go around and visiting folks outside of Pittsburgh, you know, I, Cleveland, and then Baltimore, and Detroit. So I would, I would just want to meet these folks wherever they were across the country and and learn from them and video them and photograph them and then I started seeing that the seeds that they had that came from Italy decades ago um, sometimes a hundred years ago would be just lost when they were no longer um, gardening so I started becoming the caretaker of those seeds you know, over the years I, I developed a collection, so it's the seeds, and then I started collecting the fig tree starts because those were brought over too, and those, a uh, lot of the next generations didn't know how to care for them. And, and even the tools, the tools that I would find that were brought from Italy uh, with these folks, these folks that came from a way of life where they survived on what they could grow, found it important enough 
to not only bring their seeds and their fig trees, but the tools that they needed from their garden tools. And these were like our unique tools that are, you know, I found them, you know, lying on a um, garbage heap when uh, one of the gardeners died. And I said, can I have this? He said, sure, you want that? You know, he made that, he forged that in the mill because he couldn't find that tool you know, in, in the mill where he worked, because that's the tool he um, used in Italy and he couldn't find it here. To me, that's an heirloom. Can you describe the tool and what it's for and who was this and what kind of mill did he work in? Yeah, Shenango Steel is uh, in Pittsburgh. The, you know, of course, the steel, in- steel industry is uh, huge. It was huge. And he, you know, these folks came in the 50s, worked in the steel mills and then would... Um, be the landscapers for the steel mill owners in the evening. The owners of these mills would sometimes want Italians to come and work and they would send to the villages that they knew, you know, they knew, say Giovanni Macchioni, this was a gentleman, and they um, would ask Giovanni to bring his relatives over to help not only work in the steel mill, but they knew they were excellent gardeners and their big estates they would want the Italians to be the, the gardeners for these big estates. This tool in particular is a bidente. A bidente is, uh, in Italian, uh, B is two bidente, and dente is teeth, so two teeth. So it's a um, long uh, sort of a rake hoe that just has two big prongs. And this is a very common one throughout Italy. They would use it in the springtime to turn over the soil um, much like our rototiller today. So this was a bidente that Giovanni Macchioni um, forged right in the mill where he worked. Wow. It, it reminds me of my great-great-grandfather. They came and my, my Italian ancestors came between like 1900 and 1910, like, like yours. That first wave of immigration, right. Right. And um, his, my great-great-grandfather, Vin, Vincenzo Loriello, which turned into Lorella here, worked in a mill mm-hmm. in Shelton, Connecticut. There it was textiles, and he was a dyer. And we found the article, my, my great aunt, before she died, Aunt Rita, gave me the newspaper clippings where he, it was 40 years he had worked there, 38 as a dyer, and they did a little biography of him. Mm-hmm. And they talked about his, his work there, but then they said and every day at 3 p.m. he would go work the land until nightfall. And grow beans, corn, and um, tomatoes. So and keep his wife busy <laughs> canning in the kitchen. And so it reminds me, you know, the coming over to work in these mills and then working the land. I mean, that's the same the same story. Exactly. I mean, they came from that lifestyle where they survived on what they could grow. So they had a completely different view of food than any of us do today. Food meant survival. It meant security. It meant like why would you plant grass if you could grow food on it? Because we need food to survive. And once you live through that lifestyle where food means survival, it shapes everything. It changes your entire relationship with food. You understand that food means security. And that's for my grandfather also. You know, they came over because, uh, you know, a lifestyle of growing your own food to survive is hard. And Italy was had a lot of challenges in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And he knew, he lived that lifestyle that if he did, if that crop didn't survive that year, you're 
might go hungry, you know. So he would see us as uh, young, um, you know, kids in, in the U.S. having more than enough of everything, but we didn't know how to use our hands to survive. And that worried him. I mean, he, this guy knew that what food security was. So he, he, you know, was glad that he gave us the education, you know, that his sacrifices could provide an education and that all the toys. I have pictures of him at Christmas time um, with his little silk uh, scarf on and his ripped jacket from the garden. He looked like a, a typical uh, Italian immigrant from Naples, but we're sitting on his lap with all of our toys, all of our plastics and toys. And and I know in his mind, he was conflicted because he was both glad that we could have all these things that he would never even imagine, but he worried about us. He worried that when we went out to the garden, we couldn't hardly do anything. We would just barely be able to help him. At six or seven, he was had a whole flock of sheep that he tended that he cared for the, the, and would help slaughter and would help birth the babies. So it was, it was a completely different view of life in general than he knew that we had. And, I, and that's one of the reasons I started the project because that's always sitting in the back of my mind, like how really naively we live to think that food is always going to be available at you know the local grocery store and that we don't need to be responsible for growing our own food i mean you thank goodness would survive <laughs> but most people as educated or wise as they are just couldn't survive i often wonder about that process of becoming american and assimilating and living a more comfortable life and um, like how that generation would see us, not just around food. Mm-hmm. I found a clipping of my other, on the other side, my dad's mother's father's side, my great-grandfather Michael Vigilante, who is from Foggia area. I found a 1980 article about Italians in the town he was in, in Westport, Connecticut, and he's quoted several times saying things like, younger generation doesn't understand they don't want to learn and he was the president of the saint anthony society and he was saying he's closing the doors to young people because they're not respecting the culture and as someone now several generations later trying to reconnect with the culture i'm like is that counterintuitive i can't put myself in his mind Mm -hmm. but i can imagine he had so much of that frustration seeing the privileges of the younger generations and and feeling like oh they just don't get it Right. I think maybe part of that, though, was if you came like long enough ago, like if they're the, the, the children of the parents that came in that first wave, they, it was difficult. It wasn't cool to be Italian at that time. I mean, they, there were some challenges. So you wanted to assimilate like as much as you could to give up your total culture. And um, like, I, that's why I feel like we're so lucky. We have enough distance, like we are firmly rooted in our identity as Americans, and we're not threatened now by our Italian past, that we can be so lucky that we can go back 
we're in such a privileged position that we can go back and really embrace it. Maybe it was necessary for that generation to just, you know, you have to, you have to do what you have to do and to assimilate and be part of the culture. And you, you can't blame them, you can't judge them. That was the process. And maybe now, you know, I mean, I'm sure he would be incredibly proud, incredibly proud of what you're doing. Um, so maybe it's just, you know, the evolution um, of that. Can you speak from your understanding of why was it so difficult for Italians at that time period here? And I also would like to go back further and talk about what was happening mm-hmm. back in Italy, that in southern Italy in particular, that brought so many people here. Right. At the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, there weren't a lot of uh, more Southern Europeans in the U.S. You know, I was just traveling in New England, and it was very English, you know, it was very... But then when you had, you know, in the 1880s, you had that influx of more Southern Europeans. It's uh, an unfortunate um, part of human nature to um, sometimes reject... um, be threatened by people who look a little bit different. I mean, these folks were darker, they spoke a different language, they spoke a language that um, a lot of people who were already here more established, they um, ate different foods, they, um, you know, had different customs and habits, and it just wasn't so easy to assimilate right away. And, And especially in the numbers that were coming over, you know, the people that were here and established started to feel threatened by that. It's an unfortunate part of the <laughs> of our, our brains sometimes that, that can't accept change. And it's, it's, it's our, unfortunately, our survival animal brain that, that is always protecting itself. So uh, Italians were, it, it took a while. Uh, the northerners were sometimes more easily uh, assimilated than the southerners. They were more lighter skinned and, and sometimes a, a bit more educated, but not always, and they assimilated. So it, it was difficult. It was really difficult in the 1880s to the the. 1920s and then there was so much aversion to all these immigrants that were coming over that there, the uh, laws were actually passed to slow down immigration in the 20s so it was much more difficult to come to America uh, from 1920 until post-World War II when they uh, opened up immigration again so it really slowed down um, during that time period and but people needed to leave Italy during that time because uh, between 1880 and, and 1920, Italy was in a really difficult economic situation. Uh, following the unification of Italy in 1861, when the North, prior to that, Italy was just a bunch of different kingdoms that we don't. It wasn't a country at all. So Italy is a fairly new country. When the North and the South united in the 1860s to form Italy, unfortunately, especially in the South, um, the South didn't fare very well. They didn't benefit a lot from the unification. And poverty began to um, really, and even famine became a problem. So that's why uh, Southern Italians really left in droves into all parts of the world where they were, uh, where they could find work. South America, um, Canada, 
um, Australia. So you'll find these uh, really large, conting large contingents of Italians in different pockets throughout the world, which I find uh, really fascinating. And, and then that same pattern followed after World, world War II when that second wave, they went to those same places, Melbourne, Australia, and Toronto, Canada, and if they could get into um, the U.S. So there's really a diaspora across the, the world of Italians who had to leave because of economic, uh, the economic situation after the unification. Also, the economic and physical devastation after World War II led that second wave to leave. Mm -hmm. so, so you're fully Italian, right? Yes. But you come from a mixed family. And what was uh, exactly. that like? Exactly. What was that like that's in your family? Because I know I, I have Italian-American friends who are like from Naples and Sicily, and that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. You know, no, so, so to yeah, go from that. southern to northern. Well, even if you're from one town that, that's 20 minutes away from another town, <laughs> it's a big deal. They're very, very regional. Very, But no, um, my northern, thank goodness, both of my grandparents and, and families, the maternal side that was from the north, and but, but also contadini, also farmers, also, you know, peasants, basically, which I use the term proudly. And my southern family, that was the same. They got along because they were just humble people. But it, they're, they're, it was a mixed marriage. It was definitely the north and the south were just, you know, decades before two different countries. And so my northern grandparents could barely understand my southern grandparents because of the dialects different. My southern grandfather said my northern grandmother's Italian dialect she said, oh, she speaks French. So it was almost like French dialect. And my southern grandfather um, it had a really, um, you know, like a Napolitan dialect. But they, they got along just because of who they were, I think. What were the differences you saw between their food cultures? Yeah. Yes, they definitely did eat differently. Um, my, my mother's family ate more risotto, many more rice things, meat with very little tomato sauce. There was very little tomato sauce in their diet. It was more like pot roasts with uh, root vegetables, um, more dairy-based things, butter. Whereas my southern family, you know, it was the classic tomato sauce, a lot of tomato sauce. Well, both ate from the garden, both grandfathers. I didn't know my, my maternal grandfather because he passed um, before I was born, but they say his garden was legendary. So they both ate from the garden. So I wish I knew what things the northern grandfather grew that was different um, than the southern. I always imagine them sitting together like at a, a baptism party or something and, and talking about their gardens and, you know, finding that as a commonality. I have actually both of their fig trees. So I've saved the fig tree that my grandfather grew at his house, uh, my paternal grandfather and um, the one my maternal grandfather grew. And they look so similar that I would love to have genetic testing to see if they're actually the same tree and they actually share them between each other. I, I can just see that conversation like at, at a birthday party with the, of one of the kid grandchildren, you know, talking about their fig trees because fig trees were such a big deal for them. I would like to walk around because I think we'll crack open a lot of stories that are similar to this, but I do want to ask about figs. Mm -hmm. Just because we're now talking about sharing fig trees, I really want to grow, inspired by your work, 
a fig tree collection, even though we don't even have permanent land yet. And someone recently gave me cuttings from their fig tree, and they just didn't work. So I'd love if you could give the nutshell version for how to share fig tree cuttings and have it work. Can I run to the car and get the cuttings this woman just shared with me? Of course, yes. (laughs) I just visited a lovely woman, uh, 91 years old, uh, Erminia um, Iani in Warwick, Rhode Island. And um, this is what I do. I just go around wherever I can find these lovely folks and uh, visit them and try to learn from them. I was lucky enough um, to hear about her through her granddaughter who um, followed me on Instagram and said, oh, I have to, I want to show this, show you this photo of my grandmother's fig tree. And it was truly one of the most amazing fig trees I've ever seen. A fig tree grows naturally and survives the winter if it doesn't really go much below 20 degrees in the winter. But of course here we have lots of days below 20, so you have to protect them um, in the winter. And that's what I love about um, seeing these trees that often were brought from um, Italy, often um, smuggled decades ago in uh, the lining of a coat, sewn into the lining of a coat or stitched into the hem of a skirt. Just the little cutting, a little piece of branch um, and brought over and then grown. And these ingenious ways that these immigrants uh, figured out how to grow this Mediterranean fruit in this cold climate. and. There are as many uh, methods for protecting them over the winter as there are people who grow figs. Everyone seems to have a bit of a different method, but this one, and uh, I just visited Erminia in uh, Rhode Island on Saturday, she grows hers uh, on a slight hillside. They've dug a trench in the hillside, and then the tree grows actually horizontally, (laughs) but the uh, canopy of the tree turns upward and was just filled with figs. So then in the winter, all they have to do is um, tie the canopy branches back and then lie plywood over these trenches, basically, that the tree always lies in. It's just ingenious how the, the, the methods that they've come up with to uh, keep them surviving. I mean, this this large, very large tree, probably 15 feet foot tree, grows literally sideways year round and would produced dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds of figs. Uh, she has two trees growing like this. And she was kind enough. She just got down on her hands and knees. She said, oh, if I dig this piece right here, I can send you home with some starts. Gotta go way, way deep down. So that way I can get some of the roots. See if we get some roots. Oh, oh my goodness. Thank you so much. <laughs> that is just beautiful. Thank you. You've got lots of roots on that. So Thank you can you. make yourself a plant. <laughs> Absolutely. That's such a such a gift. That's okay. Wow. Anytime there we can help you. someone, why not? Will you give it a name or does it have a name? 
Oh, this would be a Herminia's fig tree. <laughs> I never really know the varieties. I know this is a white fig with a beautiful red interior that's incredibly sweet, has a nice thick skin that can be peeled. Um, but if you want to know a, a formal variety name, don't ask me. <laughs> I never know. No, that's perfect. Figs are so resilient and so hardy. I always say they're as resilient as the immigrants that planted them and as adaptable. What are these seeds in these jars here? Yes, yeah, so she also uh, has a garden, of course. Uh, she tends. Her, her, her son now helps her turn it over in the spring and plant it. But the rest of the year, um, like I said, she's 91. She, plant, she tends the whole garden herself um, and then saves the seeds every year. She handed me this jar of seeds and said, Do, would you like some of the seeds? And I said, yes, tell me a little bit about them. And she said, well, these beans came from Italy and they're pole beans, they're variegated and they're very sweet, they're very good. So a lot of people like these beans. Mm -hmm. And so how do you know, what do you know about them coming from Italy? I know my mother-in-law had them. Oh, they were your mother-in-law. They were my mother-in-law. So, so. so she was born in Italy and she came yep, over. Yeah. And then she planted these here all the she time? She planted it here. This was her, they were in her garden. Now, then I took over the garden. Now they're my garden. <laughs> and that's it. Beautiful. You plant these and think of me. <laughs> and actually it was the same with the fig tree. She said it was her mother-in-law's fig tree, and now she's caring for it. Erminia's from um, Frosinone. She's from a different part of Italy, and she married a Calabrese, so it was a mixed marriage there, but it seemed to work out. And then also there's a, a little jar of grappa. She called them uh, rabi. So everybody has a sort of a different name for these, uh, this very early spring green. There's so many variations of it that I, I can't even begin, but it's would be known as rapini or broccoletti, maybe, but broccoletti is sort of a different family. It's a very confusing genre of, <laughs> of greens, but it's almost always will I find it in these Italian gardens because it grows easily, it self-seeds, and, and it's up early in the spring. And she had just planted it two weeks uh, before, and it was just coming up. And but she won't harvest that till um, next May. Uh, no, next uh, earlier than that. Uh, it'll be the first thing up. So probably April, she'll be harvesting what she planted two weeks ago in Rhode Island. When I saw it, she had one that was still uh, in full that had you know grown later and was still growing. It's a like none that I've seen, like a completely different variation. It had reddish in it. It was the, the leaves were almost furrier. And uh, there's so many variations. I mean, variations of everything, variations of these beans, variations of rapa. And that's why it's so important that we save all of them because um, some of these aren't even grown in the villages from which they came anymore. I've been on the trail of a um, bean, a pole bean, like, well, actually it's a bush bean that is a flat, like Roma bean, that I found growing in Northern California. And it's called a bachicha bean. 
it was brought from Genoa and grown, passed around, and, and I'm tracing um, the different places where it ended up in Northern California in these, in these communities of um, Italians who came from Genoa in different parts of Northern California. And then I found out that, that uh, several years ago, they discovered that it's no longer growing in Liguria, in Genoa, where it came, and had to be reintroduced from Stockton, California, back to Liguria in order to have the bachicha bean. So, in a way, we're like a little time capsule here. You know, we are preserving things that have, you know, sometimes aren't grown there. You know, they, they, you know, in the villages, it's like the language. You know, things evolve there. You know, the 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 language evolved, whereas the, the dialects here are preserved better than if, when they, uh, if they had stayed in Italy. Because as the Italian language and the dialects evolved, people forgot words, whereas here they were only speaking among themselves. So the language is that the dialects are actually preserved better here than in um, some parts of Italy and and the same with the seeds and also there are restrictions in the EU uh, with seed saving I was so shocked I was talking recently to um, Evan from Portland Seed House mm -hmm. and he um, he's actually farmed in Italy and he said they had to get all their uh, plants they couldn't plant the seed they had to get them from starts already started they weren't allowed to save the seeds if you were a market gardener. There are, you know, regulations restricting seed saving, which just blows my mind. And the fact that here we have seeds from Italy that um, we can save and we can be the caretakers of makes this work even more important. Absolutely. Well, why don't we visit some of these time capsules, these living time capsules, before heading to the field, Mary offered to give me one of the two fig tree cuttings from Miss Armenia. If you want to, um, one of these as your... Um, I'm afraid to take it. Are you afraid? I, I, if you're saying it's very likely to survive, I'd be happy to. It, it's very likely Cause to I, survive. Because the, the cuttings I got didn't have roots. Oh, that's the thing. And yeah. the, no, no good. But okay, well, I, I don't want to mess... This is, seems so precious to But me. I can also... I can get more cuttings from the family. But okay. if you want to... Um, to caretake Herminia's uh, new um, little uh, tree that she shared, um, I'd be uh, happy to share it with you. Yeah. I am so grateful to you, Owen, for all that you've done for my work. I mean, I was saving seeds in my basement, in my closets, trying to grow them on my own every year when I could, when I wasn't traveling with the project. And it is such a relief to have a professional <laughs> doing this work, saving these seeds. I mean, it breaks my heart. One time I did lose, well, we have the story about Mr. Antonio Machis that we can talk about, that I thought I lost those seeds. And I have, and he passed. And I thought those seeds were gone. I you know, I, yeah, with all my moves around it, different homes lately, they just, uh, I didn't care for them well enough. Let's just put it that way. And I thought they were gone. And the family said, oh, no, we, we, I'm not sure we have any more. But when he did pass, the family found some more and shared them with me. 
and I shared them with you and you got them going <laughs> and I am so grateful. So anything I can share with you, I am more than happy. I mean you and Bianca and Ethan with Growers Grange, I mean they are just a, 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 a lifesaver for me and these seeds. So I am eternally grateful to all of you. So. Oh, I am grateful. Let me give you a hug with this. Oh, <laughs> I am grateful because, you know, for me, what started as just, you know, very little connection. Mm -hmm. I remember my Italian great-grandparents pretty well, mm -hmm. but a food culture wasn't passed down. And so, you know, starting to order from Seeds of Italy, starting to get whatever I could find from other catalogs was a great start, but actually meeting other Italian-Americans and building relationships is far more profound. Um, and so this relationship means the world to me, especially with you, but also the way that you've held stories for so many other Italians and Italian-Americans is just like, this is the realization of a dream for me. So I'm very Thank grateful. You. My dream as well, <laughs> having these, these seeds in the hands of, of someone who I know will care for them. Just, you know, it, it's like I, I'm entrusting you with my, my children. <laughs> and I appreciate it so much. Maybe we better put these guys in the plastic while we... Yes. I just don't want them to dry out until we can, can get to them. Get okay, back so they're to in them. wet paper towels yep. in a closed Ziploc. Yep, yep, yep. Just keep them damp, not overly wet, but not dry, let them dry out. Okay, let's visit some of your babies. Lovely place to spend your time, Owen. It's just awesome. Very lucky. Mm -hmm. I think about, you know, my grandfather and all of those immigrants, most of the immigrants that came from um, Italy came from a lifestyle of surviving on what you could grow, spending their days in places like this, out in the nature, in the country, connected to the earth. And then when they came to the U.S., it was such an abrupt change when they spent their days in dark, smoky mills and coal mines. So any chance they had to have a garden, even if it was just a little plot, you know, um, in their backyard, they planted things. So it was a way for them to reconnect to the lifestyle that they knew. I mean, when they had to leave, things that were... There was hardship and you know want to overly romanticize the lifestyle that they came from you know but it was connected to, to nature and it was uh, a beautiful way of life um, it was hard yes and they had to leave the the bad part but they had to leave the good behind as well so this bean is from concetta liberto from um, uh, Pittsburgh. She's originally from Mairato in Calabria. I visited her two years ago and she shared these pole beans with me. She uh, showed me a handful and she called them poverella beans, which I love because poverella is like poor, poor thing. We call fagiola uh, poverella. Poverella? Uh -huh. Ah, yeah. why do you call them that? Do you know? I don't know. <laughs> when I was born, I told my mother they call it, you know. Fagiola poverella. Poverella. Uh -huh. But I've noticed that uh, 
and most of the Italians I visit, they don't plant just one variety of pole bean, and they don't care that there's a mix of pole beans in their uh, wherever whatever they plant. So I'm guessing that um, this is what they planted this type of bean they called poverella and it might have been a mix of, of a couple varieties it I see at least two varieties but this is this one with the sort of variegated that's a very common common one they're the flat Roma beans and um, when I visit Armenia on um, Saturday she of course prepared a whole meal and it had a big dish of those flat Roma beans, very similar, uh, the ones she shared with me. And they are the most delicious bean. They're meaty, and, but, and, and they cook them very well, so they're nice and soft. And they also um, cook them, on the fresh bean, and then they'll mix the, if there was a bean that has developed a little bit, they'll shell it and then cook the bean right along with the fresh ones. So you have this mix of um, you know, a shelled bean and a fresh bean together. And just oil, garlic, and they're just like the most delicious. I could make a whole meal of that with some bread. Sometimes they'll make uh, boil a potato and cut it up with it, but oil, garlic, and those beans are, they're just heavenly and meaty and um, delicious. My, my partner's from Mississippi, and we grow some of the field peas okay. that, you know, they would grow there, which is a different species. It's the African species we might call cow peas mm-hmm. um, and they will also do what they call peas and snaps where they shell the plump peas but also snap the young tender ones and of course they cook them very different from what you described but same oh, idea same idea I mean you if you're picking you just pick whatever's there and cook them together and um, and, and usually the same same recipe you know because they're so good you don't have to do anything else with them mm-hmm. I really like this mixture of types. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that some are striped purple and green and some are just this gorgeous purple and some are both, like, oh, with that. the darker purple stripes. Just beautiful. It's oh, a, my goodness. These, yeah. Well, I hadn't seen um, them growing on the vines when, um, when she, when I visited her, um, all of them, because it was later in, in the season. So it's beautiful to see them growing now. These are just beautiful. Cool. Can you tell us about this tomato? Yes. This tomato was shared with me by my dear, dear friend Mariano Floro, who unfortunately just passed in May of this year. He was one of those guys when no matter how bad a day I'm having, or how down I am, I would just go to his house and spend the afternoon with him and I would feel 100% better. I mean, he would immediately go to the refrigerator and pour out um, his, actually the freezer. He kept his crema di limoncello in there, the homemade limoncello, a creamy limoncello that he would make, and he knew I loved it. And he'd immediately go to the freezer, pour me this little uh, shot of a, basically a limoncello slushy, and um, the day just would keep getting better from there. And he was, he grew up uh, in that lifestyle, you know. He would tell me about his being a, a shepherd and how he was pr- so proud of his goats and how he had planned to um, expand his herd until he had got an opportunity to come to, well, to go first to France to work 
and then to the U.S., um, where he then became an electrician and raised a family, but always, always had a large garden in his backyard. Um, and he had shared these seeds. He called these his um, cow nipple seeds because they are they are shaped like a the nipple of a cow. And um, he would grow them every year, save the seeds, and then I was lucky enough to have him share them with me. And now they're just so dear to me because they remind me so much of him. Is this the one sauce tomato he would grow? Oh, no, he he grew lots of, uh, several different kinds. He had diff, uh, different garden plots. So he, he had um, renovated homes uh, for his children throughout the little town. Behind his home, he grew these ones. Behind his daughter's, other daughter's home, he grew a big, uh, like an ox heart and a quarter. And, um, and another daughter, um, he did grow a, another variety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the summer when things were ripening, like the eggplant and the peppers and the tomatoes, he would just mix them all. He'd, he'd stand there and just in a frying pan, get all these fresh vegetables and just um, fry them up, you know, just mix them together and with adding some basil and some um, uh, garlic. And yeah, it was just, I don't, I, I, he had a mescolata, mescatura. There was a name for it when I when he made it like that. And then he'd always have really good bread and his homemade wine. And a meal like that was just heavenly. I mean, just tomatoes, you know, sautéed with uh, some eggplant and peppers. And, uh, yeah, what else could you want? <laughs> Since we're right here, mm-hmm. this is the Lunga di Napoli right. in here. Okay. And you can in see there. some of them forming now that go all the way back in, oh. the, in this tunnel of sunflowers. That's so cool. That is so cool. Yeah, that I, I think... I, I collected a seed um, about a year ago from a woman from California, and um, I need to share it with you because we need to find out if it is this. She called it a Napolitan uh, a zucchini, mm. a, a kugutz. You know, they call all the uh, squashes like that kugutz. That was what my grandfather, how he, they, he would refer to it them. But I have that seed, and I need to know if it is that, that would be great. So you can experiment for me next year. I'll, I'll speak with her as well. Yeah, I would love to figure out how to isolate it and try it out. Mm-hmm. They've been growing this one for maybe seven years There's or eight. And the ones you're seeing now are still quite small. Oh, they're so large. There's unbelievable. I love that. Um, well, just like the Kukuza, they just let them um, grow like, like you know, a chef might say, oh, harvest them at like 12 inches or something. But um, it would be rare, even for zucchini, for an Italian to let it, to harvest it when it's just a tiny. Because if you had to survive on what you could grow, you weren't going to just get petite little fruit. (laughs) You know, you would grow it to a pretty big size. I didn't even know that zucchini was supposed to be harvested small I would just hand my friends these really large zucchini like my I mean not huge but larger than and they'd be oh that's really large it's like well that's how we ate it because you want to maximize your food you know even if and they would you know my grandmother would cook everything to be delicious so I never thought you had to harvest it when it was nice and tender and little 
we take these at their ultimate size for the seeds, of course, but they're still really good eating at that point. I mean, it's Even a winter squash. Big. Yeah. It can be eaten as a summer squash, but it's a winter squash also. And I remember taking one to a meeting that I went to, and I cut off chunks for people that were big enough for at least a meal, if not two. And I think I gave away 10 or 12 chunks from one squash. That's Yeah, you could get 10 or 12 meals from... Um, from one squash that's mm-hmm. that's when you're when you're eating to survive that's a very uh, smart thing to grow well let's see one of the older cucurbits that have been grown in Italy for even longer we walked past the loofah vines and over to the cucuzza gourds which shared the same trellis and this is Mr. Maki's? it is oh. You don't know how happy I am to see those. I thought I lost those seeds. Antonino Maki, he passed. He was a Sicilian fisherman. And he used to grow these. I would visit him. And uh, he just loved to show off his garden. He was so proud. He had been a Sicilian fisherman. And he um, then went into the produce business when he came to the U.S. But... um, he and he loved everything about the garden about produce his garden um, he would every year construct all his trellises and the trellises that were strong enough to hold these which you know like you said they're just pulling the the your trellises down he would construct them out of old pieces of wood he would make these frames out of old pieces of wood with little pieces of string only with pieces of string that he would construct these um, trellises out of because he knew all these special knots from being a fisherman and from repairing his nets. So he could do amazing things with string and he could create trellises of pieces of wood with string that were strong enough to hold these I mean, how many pounds would you say one of those is? I have no idea. Well, they're probably at least three feet long. Three feet, oh, And maybe, maybe you know, three or four inches wide. So long and skinny. And um, quite heavy. They're probably at least 10 or 15 pounds. Right, right. So can you imagine every year constructing um, trellises out of, wo- of wood that his son would say, that wood's 40 years old, I don't even know how it's standing. <laughs> but he would do that with just pieces of string and, and tie them and create these trellises strong enough to hold those. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those are the seeds I thought I had lost after he had shared them with me. But after he passed, the family found some more um, and they hadn't been planted for who knows how long, at least uh, five or six years since he had been um, gardening. Um, And then I shared them with you and here they are. And now we have fresh seed. I go, I got a little bit of school, miss. Four years of school. I had to work when I was 10 years old, miss. The biggest fish I catch was about 500 pounds. The biggest fish I catch was a shark. Dolphin. One uh, they got the point, miss. You know, they call them a swordfish. Swordfish. Yeah, those you know. After that, we used to catch the fish about ten, twelve pounds. They used to call them la longa. It's uh, like a shape like a tuna. Okay. Yeah, real nice fish. We have almost we catch the sardine and chove, you know. So you caught everything in nets, even the 500 pounds? 
Yeah, in a net. Not with a pole in the... No, no. Everything was nets. With a net. I have to admit something to you, mm -hmm. that when we planted them, it was our first time growing in a new greenhouse mm -hmm. at this high school, mm -hmm. and we didn't realize the extent of their mouse problem. Oh, oh. And the mice dug up and ate almost every seed. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. That was what they wanted. They dug. Oh, I'm so sorry. You must have been devastated. I, that was the <laughs> worst out of the, all the things we were growing. I was like, this seed is extremely precious. What I was taught, though, is to never plant every seed. Yes. Good job. And I want to pass that to the <laughs> listeners. And this is why. The mice ate every single seed I planted oh, of the kukuza. And I had, I think, three more. And I planted two of the three because you don't plant every seed. <laughs> <laughs> and these are the two. So we have oh two single plants taking this 40 feet of fence. Oh and, my gosh. you know, each of these fruits must have hundreds of seeds in them. And you can see there's dozens of fruits. Yes, yes. I mean, yes, everyone is going to have dozens. And there's a, a little tutorial on my, my website from a Sicilian gentleman from Nutley, New Jersey, on how, to, how he saves his kukuza. Um, oh, do you remember seeds. the tips? Well, he said he dries them um, for a long time in, in their hang. They turn all brown on the outside, and then, of course, the inside dries out. And then the seeds themselves, um, you can almost hear them rattling in there. So he cuts a hole at the bottom and then gets a stick and shoves it up the hole at the, in the bottom and loosens the seeds, and then they all fall out, and he still has the whole shell intact. And what I do, I let it dry. When it's dry, I put a hole underneath, I put a stick, and it makes it coming down. That sounds way <laughs> easier than what we do. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll send you the video. We, we, we get them at a certain point when the stem turns brown and the fruit is still kind of green and hard. It's a little browning. And then we set up a whole tarp with, with kind of a rim to catch flying seeds and we dance on them. Oh, that sounds like more fun. Though. Because if you cut them open and try to work with them, they actually can cut you. The, oh. the skin is very sharp. Oh, after it's dry. You mean after, as when, it When dries. it's still kind of um, green. Oh, okay. And you cut it, slice it with a knife, it's too sharp. So we dance on it. And, you know, we have a grower friend who grows it for us as well, and she does what you described. Right. We found our seeds to germinate a little better, which helps when you're a seed company. Absolutely. But when you're at home, yeah. if you still get... 70 percent oh, that's those? plenty yeah, yeah that's more than enough <laughs> well yeah or maybe dry both methods just in case yeah. with these ones yeah for sure well there's already some drying down here this one has already come off the plant yeah wow so we'll bring that in ahead of the before the mice find it right exactly they would have literally a field day on that <laughs> <laughs> on that one Absolutely. And this is an African species. I don't know how much you think about the origins of these Italian vegetables, but they are often not from Italy. Absolutely. I mean, tomatoes aren't from Italy, basically. Peppers, eggplants, the be the flat beans you were showing me, those are all American. Mm -hmm. Tomatoes, peppers, not eggplants, tomatoes, peppers, the common beans, zucchini, the lingua di Napoli, those mm -hmm. are all American species, and yes. this is African. And the fact that this is this is typical Sicilian, you know. Think how close, you know. Africa's not that far um, from Sicily, so it, it makes a lot of sense that this is 
you know, a typical Sicilian vegetable. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, long predates the zucchini and all the other American mm. squashes. So you think, often associate those things with Italy, just like tomatoes, peppers, and beans, very mm. classic Italian food. But, of course, there were foods there before, you know, the 1400s, and this exactly. was one of them. Wow. And, like, the favas were before the common beans, you know, and oh, the chickpeas okay. and the lupini beans and things like that. Those are old world species mm -hmm. compared to a lot of the ones that we see now in Italian gardens. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder even about those uh, uh, fagiolini lunghi, the real long, thin um, bean that we were talking mm -hmm. about. My friend Tomasina, I thought they were an Asian species mm -hmm. um, because I see them in so many um, Asian gardens. Mm -hmm. um, but Tomasina swears you know her mother's been planting them it was planting them in italy and her uncle was planting them you know for generations but who knows they you know still have an asian orange origin and so they well it's a c interesting story that species maybe we'll visit that species next because mm -hmm. they have an italian cow pea basically field oh, okay. pea that's the same species as the long beans as we call them okay. which do originally originate as a species a domesticated species in africa you know, it's the black-eyed pea, it's okay. the cow pea. And they, over thousands of years, make their way east through Asia because there's so much trade, you know, between Africa and Asia and then, of course, Europe mm -hmm. because they're all on trade routes. And so the, the cow pea or the black-eyed pea becomes the long bean by, by, by the time it gets to East Asia and South Asia. It's selected in, in India and East Asia for this long, tender pod. Um, and then, of course trade happens and I'm sure it came back to Italy during you know it's hundreds and hundreds of years ago exactly exactly and now you know um, it's just considered part of the cuisine after this conversation we visited the black IP from Umbria and then the long bean from Indonesia here's a bit of that last part yeah, those are quite long. Mm -hmm. Those are quite long and hearty. Yeah, and you would eat them. You see the row there that was planted later. Okay. So you'd eat them more like in right. that stage. Right, when they're much more tender. Yeah, they're a beautiful dark oh. purple. They, the family that from Indonesian that, that gave them to me call them long purple peanut in their language, or long okay. purple long bean, you know. Mm -hmm. So this one is um, a, pepper, a frying pepper. From, so I, I had been okay. So, at one of my previous farms, I was driving home from work, and saw that I always get pizza on the way home because it's like when I learned <laughs> that pizza was an ancestral food, I was like, yes, yes I can eat it every day. <laughs> um, so I stopped at a pizza place that said. Um, what was it called? Uh, Napoli pizza and pasta. Mm. And I was like, oh, Napoli. Oh, perfect. I, I walked in and I was like, hi, I'm a farmer. I ordered my pizza. I, hi, I'm a farmer. I farm down the road and I love growing southern Italian things and my people are from near Naples. And he had been grown up there, Bruno. Mm -hmm. And um, he started showing me pictures on his phone. He was like, oh, I've got a big garden at home. i got a garden outside the restaurant. He's like grapevines and basil and tomatoes and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And he said, you got to find this pepper called pepperoni friariello. Mm. And it's like a big deal, I guess, in Naples area. And the only one I could find was from a seed catalog, um, and it was delicious. And apparently you use the green ones. I don't know if you know this pepper or this recipe. Not particularly. But yeah. it's a, basically just a frying pepper where you'd mm -hmm. use the green ones, 
and as simple as olive oil and garlic kind of like what you were describing before and if you want to make it you know a little more warming you add tomato sauce and it's so good i don't usually like green peppers i like so ripe peppers yeah. but that, that's such a delicious so they would just fry them fry them green mm-hmm. uh, um, i'm sure they let some well I guess for the seed you have to let them go red too right. but they probably taste lovely red too oh the red is awesome but in all the videos i looked up on mm-hmm. youtube from Italy uh-huh. of people showing this recipe they were green the green peppers oh yeah we my grandmother would fry um, green peppers all the time they fried peppers are so delicious <laughs> fried peppers just the simple the way they turn sweet and just uh, just frying peppers and just the smell of frying peppers that like brings me back to my childhood and I am sure these are wonderful when they're fried just a whole and there's they're all sweet right there's they are and i'll send you home with a bunch of them if we remember before you leave and you can try it but what happened was i i started selling that pepperoni friariello and this guy wrote to me through our website Mm -hmm. and was like i love the way you talk about your great grandmother anyone who talks about their grandmother that way should get some free seeds oh lovely (laughs) and i guess in one of my descriptions i forget which one i was describing the the village in the mountains that my great grandmother came from and telling her story and he said i'm from naples too i live in southern connecticut he's from norwalk which is where next next town over from where my great grandfather lived and where my parents grew up and they were born in norwalk hospital you know and so he was like, let me send, I've tried your pepperoni friariello. They're good. Mine are way better. <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's so typical. So typical. And these are his. So I called it oh. Vinny's pepperoni friariello. Oh, lovely. Um, they are actually, I mean, I like them all, but these, I love the shape of these. I love that they grow with their, like, upside great. down. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. And oh, they're so, so prolific. Great. And, um, so you know, we also have in our catalog the classic Italian-American heirloom frying pepper jimmy nardellos right right which is the same idea right it's just a little longer yeah yeah i love that he called and he he just needed you to know that his were better and that (laughs) you 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 really should be eating his and he was right i mean he was honestly right i like the other ones too but i'm in love with this pepper this one in particular Mm -hmm. do you know any more about him can can we (laughs) do you think he's still with us? Oh, he is still with us. We oh. talk maybe once a year on the phone. I haven't met him yeah. yet. I, oh. m- I mentioned I would love we to interview there. him. That's a road trip, Owen. Absolutely. <laughs> he he also go. sent me um, a Ischia eggplant. So okay. from across the water, the little island of Ischia, if yes. I'm saying it right. There, in that Norwalk area, there's several folks I've heard of from Ischia. Mm-hmm. And um, that's great. No, and that's, that's a great... Uh, you don't often find seeds that mm-hmm. came from that area so no that's that's lovely the it's a beautiful eggplant we have it in the catalog now for a couple of years i've seen farms around the area growing mm-hmm. it and beautiful harvests mm-hmm. it's just it, and and now like my one of the dishes i've adopted as one of my italian dishes is eggplant parmesan uh, and um i think that's my favorite food <laughs> in the world it's the best <laughs> and i have to say i make a good one um, i follow a recipe on youtube <laughs> You from can't go cooking with Nona. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> with the Ro- mint. Rosella. With the yes. mint that's in the batter. Oh, okay. So yeah. Good. Oh, e- eggplant parmesan is just. Oh, it's always so good. Mm-hmm. I, I'll order it wherever I am if they if it's on the menu. It's just and it it just, 
a total throwback to my grandmother. Mm -hmm. She made amazing eggplant parmesan. And of course, eggplants are an Asian species, at least right. the kind that oh. we're familiar with. Okay, yeah, I think I knew that. Mm -hmm. Well, let's check out this other plant right up here. <clears throat> I think this is actually one that may have originated in the Mediterranean and in Italy. I could be wrong. This is Nepatella. No. I first had it at a restaurant, actually at a bed and breakfast during one of our anniversary weekends, and it was a um, garnish on the plate mm -hmm. at an Italian-American run bed mm -hmm. and breakfast. And she grew all of her own food for the restaurant in her garden. This is up in northern New Jersey. And um, this was one of the plants that she grows from Italy out of many. I mean, she grows a lot of Italian plants. And I just never heard of it. And it, it's pretty delicious. If you want to try a leaf. Yeah. Mm. Tell, tell us what you think. So interesting. It has like a minty, but it's got a little bite to it. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, thymey, you know. It has it's a blend of different things. Yeah, I feel like there's like oregano, thyme, mm -hmm. mint. Mm -hmm. yeah. Really nice. It's very flavorful. So this now is our biggest patch we've had, and mm. it's actually very close to going to seed now, as you so can see. But it's got these bees. little light, like lavender mm -hmm. flowers. Yeah, the bees love it. Yeah. And, it's, and you know, I I recently my partner and I gave a talk at Longwood Gardens out here and went to some dinner for speakers the night before and they had this homemade ice cream with each with a sprig of nepotella oh, in the top so nice so it has this nice like mm -hmm. kind of fancy feeling yeah. <laughs> flavor and experience to 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 a meal pretty this is the finocchio mm -hmm. the fennel yeah this is um most likely from calabria i'm i'm sure this this is uh, the one i gave you from the uh, macchioni family and um, they brought it, it's I have some video of uh, Fenice from the same hometown that this came from teaching me how to when to pick it when the right time to harvest the seed yeah you have to let them dry okay when they dry like that if you put them on the sun it gets a little bit more like a dry mm -hmm. and then I just go like this with my hands see in between your hands or you could do this if you want to, but your finger will get a little sore from doing that. Mm -hmm. It's better the other way because it's a little easier and the quicker, mm -hmm. and that's quicker. So you get it just when it's nice and dry. Now it's on a kind of a little bit damp yet. It's not really, really dry. And I won't be able to do it too much because on a kind of, the more it's dry, the better it is. And sort of it comes apart easier. So how long ago did you pick this? Uh, it's immature. I feel like I've got some on the plants there. It should be picked. I keep an eye on it whenever I think it's ready. I pick it because I don't want to get too dark. I don't like too dark. I like mine nice and green. Because the more it gets darker, that means it's more mature, which is okay too. But I think when it's green, it's looks more like finocchio and you use this for the supersata yeah mm -hmm. yeah for supersata and, and uh, you can use some in the soup you can use some many many dishes too um sometimes if it's not too big you can even put a little bit of maybe a pinch even in your spaghetti sauce mm. yeah you can use it anywhere you wish really 
It's good for anything. Meatloaf, you can put a little pinch in there in the meatloaf. It gives them a different flavor. And it sort of make it the tasty nicer. And you get a little bit of that flavor, all of the seasoning there. And it makes extra special. Do you see any that are close to ready for harvest? It might be a little early. Oh yeah, no, they, they are not not ready yet, no. I saw some further along the other day, maybe on the other side. Or Okay, these are getting a little plump up here. Oh yeah, yeah, there they go. They're turning into the seed. But no, they, they need to be like a little um, bigger, plumper, and a, a little slightly still green and but like looking like they might be turning dark at any minute but um and they just you know make a fennel tea to calm the stomach did you receive any planting instructions for for fennel oh for fennel uh I guess I'm, it's a leading question because yeah. I was told by my yes, partner yes, yes. who's not Italian okay um that he had heard that Someone said when you plant fennel, you're supposed to curse it. Oh, I love that. No, it's probably in some part of Italy. That's I'm sure that's a tradition. Yeah, curse it so that that it grows better, or you don't get the evil eye around it, or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So no, I planted great. some of this with my kid in our backyard, and of course I had to do kid-friendly version of cursing, so which yeah, was yeah, probably right, like right. you're bad. <laughs> you're bad. Don't grow Instead well. Of the the, the uh, stream of words you could have used. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. No, I. <laughs> I love those traditions about like don't plant on the 17th of the month because that's se- in seven um, 17 in Italian is an unlucky number mm. so you can't plant anything on that day whereas 13 is a lucky number in Italian um, lore so um, yeah there are there are traditions I mean even when I go into these gardens I have to watch when I admire them too much because there's this some folks believe the tradition is that if you're admired, if someone's um, unwittingly, not intentionally, but putting the malocchio on you, the evil eye. So when I've seen, especially Mariano, if I'm raving about a plant, I'll see him doing this, uh-huh. doing like this uh, with his hand. Bull's horn. Yeah, with, which is wards off the evil eye and, I, and I'll laugh and I'll say what are you doing he's like oh, I want to make sure you don't give me the malocchio <laughs> um, and because you know they, they who knows you know they, they really believe it and it, it's a way I, I think to it, it they don't like too much um, too much self pride you know it, it, it's sort of and um, it uh, way to keep you humble if you're you're not you're not supposed to brag too much you're not supposed to have too much attention given to you and um so i, I love learning these traditions these uh beliefs as i go yeah that sounds really useful i, I know there's a lot of ways people ward off the evil eye there's yeah. including wearing like a a, um, a horn yeah 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 the cor- the corno the corinche it's a yeah, like a horn. Like it looks like a little pepper, mm-hmm. little red pepper. Mm-hmm. That's supposed to bring good luck or keep the evil eye away, mm-hmm. for sure. What might happen if you don't keep the evil eye away? Yeah, well, then you get um if you if you've been cursed, <laughs> you can tell because and this this is from my friends who, you know, 
have lived this. And when they would get sick as a child or get a little fever, their grandmother would say, oh, you got the malocchio. So they would, the, the grandparents or somebody in the town that knew the curse reversal would do this chant over you um, to remove it. And um, actually the folks I visit now, they, they tell me how it actually works. You start to yawn, you start yawning to gain your energy back. It's like the, the curse takes your energy away. And as the chant is being told to them, if they start yawning, they're actually getting their energy back, and then they start to feel better. Have you noticed any, I imagine most of the, the people you meet are Catholic. Yes. Have you yeah. noticed any kind of Catholic mm-hmm. um, rituals or beliefs or traditions that manifest in the garden? Yeah, well, I love, on my website, I have a whole photo gallery of the garden statuary, you know, having the Madonna watch over your garden, having St. Anthony as a statue um, in your garden. And I love it. I, I love that because, you know, when you think about it, if food meant survival and, you know, not having food meant that, you know, a child might die, that you wanted to invoke divine protection over that food. So it makes sense that you know, La Madonna is watching over your garden, or St. Anthony's watching over your garden. And um, I love them, and they're beautiful, this, this statuary. Mm-hmm. I learned from Pat O'Boyle from mm. the Italian American podcast, which is also where I first heard of you, right. um, that he, his people are from the same area in the mountains south of Naples mm-hmm. called the Cilento. Mm-hmm. Um, and that originally there was a statue to Hera, the Greek goddess Hera, um, up there that people would make pilgrimages to, because that little area is a lot of Greek people, historically, that escaped, that came to the coast, then escaped the pirate attacks from the coast up into the mountains where they settled, and then with the Christianization of the area, it became a statue to Mary. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. And then with this pilgrimage annually up to the statue, you know, people walking and singing and praying and eating. And he's um, revived a similar um, festival uh, in, in North, North Jersey based on that historic that pilgrimage. And so me and my sister went a few years ago to meet him finally and give him some seeds and plants and... Um, hopefully someday I'll have him on the podcast too because yeah. he's a wealth of knowledge. He is. He's the walking Italian um, American encyclopedia. <laughs> I mean, he knows the history. It just blows your mind. Yeah, I love that. I love the seeing the pre-Christian, you know, the more pagan roots and how it, you know, turned into Christian symbolism and um, yeah, even the the I have I was able to record. Um, the chant, the curse reversal chant from a woman who's passed um, from Abruzzo. She was in her 90s and living in the Bronx. She did the chant for me and then there was a lot of Christian elements but you could tell, I couldn't understand all of it because it was an ancient Abruzzese dialect, but you could tell that this was pre-Christian. This was, you know, this didn't originate with Christianity 
and but they blended Christian themes in it, you know. So it, it's really fascinating to see how um, those things uh, were adopted to make uh, Christianity work for them, even though they to to keep their pagan roots and things. We walk over to a table with some recent seed harvests from our farm. But these are these are the favas you sent me. I had nine seeds. Wow, you and, did pretty well. And so they've they've multiplied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is Nick Ranieri. He um, is from Bari, Amola di Bari in um, Puglia, and he grows these. He he has a garden in Long Island, New York. Actually, these would have come from his his original garden that um, we are doing a documentation for the Smithsonian Archive of American Gardens. His will be the second of the gardens that we've documented for the Archive of American Gardens. We did all the field work, we have all the photographs, and we saved seeds, and we did video, and thank goodness because that garden no longer is there. He had to move, he's older, he moved, he has a, he has a, still has a small garden, but the original amazing garden from which these seeds came is no longer there, and so these are even more precious now. Semora precoce are the dark precocious ones, they're the early ones. Mora precoce, precoce is like the early fava, and he swears these are the best fava ever. It's the best fava I've grown. Oh, good, good. We don't have great success with fava in this hot, humid climate. Okay, that's good to know. And they are just so pretty, too. They're really dark, dark, deep purple and uh, have a little purple, lighter purple hint to them. And it's, you know, favas aren't usually this color. This is uh, a very unusual color for a fava bean. And they're really nice, long, green pods, like very long. Okay, really nice uh, fruit. Oh, and this is Swiss chard. This seed came from California, from my friend Caio Simbola. He's originally from Sardinia, and but this seed he got, he said he got it in California from a Sicilian family that brought this in the late 1800s. So this has been planted for a long time in the U.S., much more tender and uh, lighter color than most Swiss chard. I mean, it just... Yeah, light and very tender it just melts in your mouth and um, easy to grow and then one you let one plant go to seed and you get so many so many seeds you did great oh my gosh you got yeah so and this many. is the good seeds and then these are the ones that are lighter weight oh okay so wow there's quite a lot there are yeah but still wonder what the germination rate would be for those ones even i think these ones will all still grow too yeah try because <laughs> there were even lighter weight ones that i that's, tossed that's Great. Um, oh, so exciting. And kind of lastly, mm-hmm. we are already offering one of your varieties in our catalog, right. which which also represents a beautiful relationship that you've alluded to. Right. So I just wanted to mention that family and that project. Yes, yes. Our first release with uh, with uh, True Love Seeds is uh, an Abruzzo lettuce that Sabatino Donardo from Pittsburgh um, grew for decades and um, after he passed the family asked me to help them save his fig tree so I went and and I do that often I love to help people save a fig tree when someone passes and they don't know what to do so I uh, went and I was helping and in his garden was still growing um, it was early spring but 
there were the small starts of this lettuce that he grew. So we saved them. Uh, the family said he always called it Pepe Insalata because Pepe was his, uh, Giuseppe was his father-in-law and it, they were seed that his father-in-law gave him from Italy. So he always called it his Pepe Insalata. So don't ask me what scientific variety it is or what type. I, it, for me, it'll always be Pepe Insalata. And, and it was grown by Bianca and Ethan at the Grower's right, Grange. Right, lovely Bianca and Ethan and, uh, in uh, Corbett, Oregon. Um, are growing that one out and they love it. They do some for Market Garden and they send me photos of these giant heads of Sabatino's lettuce and um, it's just beautiful. So I am eternally grateful to them. And they've been, you know, we met them a couple years ago when they were apprenticing at Rodale Institute and started coming and spending some Fridays with us on our farm and we successfully recruited them as growers for us and then we learned we both had a connection to you and they also grow these different red flower corns from Italy for our catalog and seem to have a whole CSA just focused on Italian vegetables. So they're kind of an inspiration to me. Oh, absolutely. Yes, to, to have such a passion to focus your CSA on Italian heirlooms. And, um, and for us to all meet each other is just, you know, a gift from the heavens <laughs> because we, we all are, you know, have such a, a shared mission and uh, passion and um, it's just so wonderful to be around kindred spirits like that. Thank you for sharing this work. I mean, it's, it's, I've been doing it as, as a passion project, um, and, but it really is so much bigger than me. I don't know if I mentioned that I call it the Italian Garden Project, but it really is growing into the National Foundation for the Preservation, Preservation of Italian Gardening Heritage. That's what it needs. I mean, with all of these different aspects, and that is way bigger than me. So, you know, your help, Bianca's help, and, um, you know, this project is growing and, and it needs to grow and um, for the sake of our ancestors. Well, thank you again, and mm -hmm. can't wait to see you next time. <laughs> Please come back. Come, back, come to Pittsburgh. I will. We'll hang out in Pittsburgh. <laughs> I will. Maybe we can go interview some people together. Yes, let's go visit some of my friends. Oh, let's do it. Okay, great. Let's get you some of those frying peppers. Oh, lovely. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much to Mary Maniti for sharing these stories with us. And thank you for listening and sharing this episode of Seeds and Their People with your loved ones. Please share this episode with someone you love and subscribe to our show in your favorite podcast app. Thank you also for helping our seed keeping and storytelling work by leaving us a review and also ordering seeds, t-shirts, and more from our website, trueloveseeds.com. And again, if you'd like to support our podcast for $1 or more monthly, please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash trueloveseeds. And remember, keeping seeds is an act of true love for our ancestors and our collective future. Don't go yet. Here's a couple little snippets from the Italian Garden Project welcome video from their website I wanted to leave you with, featuring Michele Vicaro and Dominic Carpico and Mary Miniti herself. Now, where'd you get these seeds? Is this, do you buy these over here? There's one Calabresigo to me. I work in a mill, I lay bricks with him, 
and we start talking about the Brooklyn. Hey, I don't got him for a long time, this, but I had him back of that, you know. So he said, I got a song. He bring him a song, and sounds of then, there we are. The best thing ever did, he ever did that. Maybe you got to love the land. You have to have an inside of you. That's what my family was always the farmers. I start to do the outside, that's what I like. I love that outside work. The other day, I won the spaghetti with oil and garlic. I went up there, I got to the parsley, I got the oregano, I got the pepper, onions, all fresh. I cut, man, man, I eat like, <laughs> like blue, but the, the real stuff. We want to make sure that the wisdom and traditions of these gardeners live on. We feel an urgency and responsibility to preserve this knowledge and share it with all of you. That's what the Italian Garden Project is all about. I love spending time with these gardeners, and I think you will too. Benvenuti. Welcome. Hello again. I know we're past the end of the episode and we're kind of in the secret bonus track section, but I wanted to introduce this final clip that Mary sent to me that was part of a tribute video after Antonino Maki passed away, and it's of him singing with his family, and I thought it was just a very beautiful way to end the episode. It's a song that's really a love song, but I like to imagine not actually knowing his relationship to this song, that maybe he's singing to the garden or to those kakuza plants that he was talking about earlier in the episode as a way to keep him connected to a time that was simpler. And so, here we go. Thank you.